Well, thank you for being here today. I haven't tried to get a little technology up, but it's not their problem, it's mine. So we're grateful for your presence. Uh, this is the second uh, class. Yesterday uh, we discussed part one of, uh, of courage. Basically, leadership is spelled C-O-U-R-A-G-E and setting sail into unknown future. And so today, uh, John Mulliken and myself, Grady King, with, we're with Hope Network. And uh, you can find our website at hopenetworkministries.org. And there's, uh, we try to write regular blogs and resources and all kinds of tools. We do all kinds of work. And uh, I need to get rid of this. Oh, you're on it. And so we are uh, grateful for your presence today. And it's a beautiful, beautiful day. We have a book that came out last year. We're currently out of print. It is available on Kindle called Navigating the Storm, Resources of Hope for Church Leaders. Uh, uh, about 50% of what we're talking about today is in the book. And uh, it's, it's about over a 300-page book with different chapters dealing with church leaders. And you can get it through Amazon uh, uh, on Kindle. There we go. There we go. So that's the title of the book. And John's a Navy guy, so we have to use nautical imagery all the time, or I can't go to heaven. Uh, it's one of those deals. And so we're both from Oklahoma, so we do understand tornadoes, okay, and bad weather and wind and rain and sleet and snow. Thank you very much. All right, got it. We're good. So this is, uh, today we want to, kind of review what we did yesterday, and uh, we're from Joshua 1, 1 through 9. We want to read that text again if you weren't with us as the, the basis of our time together. Let's meet without a word of prayer, and then I'll read this text. God, it is an incredible thing to be considered your children. And we are grateful that you have called us into your presence and out of darkness into light. We are grateful, Father, for the privilege of engaging in your story and participating in your story. And we pray, God, that you <coughs> give us courage that we desperately need in times that we live in our churches and in the world to be your people more fully. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and, help me church, courageous. For you shall put this people in possession of the land that I swore to their ancestors to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. 
Do not turn from the right hand or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, and you shall be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it, for then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall be successful. I hereby command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. So that's kind of home base about the courage. It's interesting, and he gave them the land that he promised, but they still had to fight. They still had to go through the struggle. They still had to endure the pain. They still had to deal with their fears. They still had to deal with all that stuff, even though he promised it. So yesterday, we defined courage as the ability to do something you know is difficult or dangerous. And we talked about Acts chapter 4. The point there was? Well, the courage uh, best comes through and by the Holy Spirit for us who are, who are Christ followers and, and counting on our own uh, psyche, our own abilities is limiting that to source the Holy Spirit as Peter did in Acts 4 when he boldly spoke and professed to the, uh, to the uh, Pharisees that they had killed Jesus and that he's the one who is the only name upon which we're saved. We've got to turn to the Holy Spirit to, to help us with so then we had distributed rocks. I hope you still have your rock if you were in class. Ask you to put it in your pocket. It came to act at the end of the time saying, think of courage as a rock that's in your pocket that you've got to keep with you. And every once in a while, you got to pick, it, pick, it, pick it up, take it out of your pocket, hold on to it to uh, do that. So that was yesterday. Um, oh, wrong one. Um, so we talked about some ways to build courage. The first one we talked about Actually, the last one, we're going to put it first today, is you've got to know yourself. You've got to know what's going on inside of you if you're going to have courage. What are your fears? What are your emotions? You want to say something about that? Okay. We talked about uh, I, I, this idea, you can tell I'm the preacher that did this. Confess the emotion that hinders motion. It's got to rhyme, you know. It's got to rhyme. You know, three points in a poem and a sermon illustration or whatever. But confess the emotion that hinders motion. You, you've got to say, I feel scared. I think that. I you got to get the motion out. Most of our stuff in church is not rational or logical. It's emotion. Most of our church stuff and directions of the church, vision, conversation we have, listen to the emotion going on people. Listen to your own emotion. What's really going on? Number three, identify your ministry burden or passion. If you're struggling with courage, what are you most passionate about in your ministry burden or passion? You listen to people. What feeds your soul? What are you convicted the body of Christ does? Now, you're always going to respond. You're always going to respond to the church and see the church through the lens of your own gifts and ministry burden. Does that make sense? So if you're a gift of mercy, the church is never, the downside is the church, your church is never merciful enough. If your church, if your gift is administration, we are the most disorganized church I've ever seen in my life. We can't decide anything. We can't organize that's the downside. The upside is you have gifts to be able to help with that. Use them. Uh, and so that's why if you, you'll act better with courage if you find what you're really passionate about and what your ministry burden is. And fourth, declare the next step with someone in prayer and accountability. Here's what I'm going to do. I want you to know this. I want you to remind me that I said this. Help me be accountable. Ask me about it. So that's where we went yesterday. Um, so today we're going to talk about collective courage. And 
So yesterday we talked about individual courage. Today we're talking about collective courage in part because uh, we, we think in, I do, in elder terms because elders are always in groups and they lead as a group typically. But in general church world, you're typically with a, some sort of ministry team. And so it's rare that you get to make unilateral decisions, although there are sometimes you can. So what we want to talk about today is collective courage, group courage. And so we've changed the, the uh, definition just a little bit, and that is the ability to do something you know is difficult or dangerous, and we add, while working in a group or doing so in concert with others in a group. This is something in, in our polity that we have taken for granted for, I think, too long. And that is that a group of men, and it is in our polity, typically men, are responsible to lead the church as a group. Well, we don't do that anywhere else, really. I mean, you might be on a team at work, and you might have some sort of interaction with somebody, but not in numbers of 5, 6, 7, 19. I mean, you know, back in the 50s and 60s when we were more monolithic and all of us had a similar experience, perhaps, it was a bit easier. But it's not to be taken for granted. We can't even decide where we're going to go to lunch after church, right? Much less decide the, the, the criticality of where a church is headed in the future. And so it takes courage from the group to be able to move in a particular direction. Yes, individual courage is important, and probably it starts with some individual stepping forward and saying, being afraid of something or knowing something's going to be difficult, and they step forward and say, this is what I think we need to do. They may light that fire, but they're in a group. And people in that group can extinguish that thing and put it out pretty quickly. And you've probably participated in that in some form or at least witnessed it okay so we're talking about now group courage how does the group walk forward courageously into an unknown future a difficult future a dangerous future okay so let's talk about again yesterday I talked about an internal stuff inside of us that would prevent us from moving forward and being courageous, and then we have an external force that's on us, the world around us might be the dangerous or difficult part, right? An experience that we've had before that makes us fearful to have that experience again. Now we're talking about the group. So now it's what's internal to the group that keeps us from moving forward, and then there's the world outside of that that's external. So internal, you know, we, we know each other often well enough to know that the safe, there's, a, there's a safety-oriented person in a group or persons. And you say, we need to take a risk. And the safety person says, well, that's not safe. Right? But I'm not making fun of them or saying that's wrong. We need people to say, hey, let's be cautious. Let's be smart about this. But the safety-oriented person can extinguish a fire of movement right? that's internal to the group. That's not outside the group. That's inside the house. Is this making sense? So outside... The external forces are our anxious culture, uh, you know, whatever else might be impinging on us, whether that's the, you know, the world, people against what, uh, Christianity, or you know, the, the culture pushing us uh, toward relationships that are unbiblical, whatever those things are. That's away from us. So we've got inside the group and outside the group. And there's a special case inside the group we want to talk about today. And that's the guy who's known as the bully. What about the bully? I don't know if there's a percentage on it, but as we said yesterday, our group and Hope Network has worked with, in the last year and a half, two years, 225, 230 churches. Uh, 
I was in 47 churches just in one year, worked with about 200 leaders. And I'd say 70% of my time, there was at least one person or two people that I would consider um, that, were, that was nice on the outside, but as I have conversations with people in weekends with churches and side conversations or go to lunch or just listen or observe, I would put them in the category of sometimes an unintentional bully. They just have power and everybody defaults to them. And sometimes they're intentional. They're very intentional. And everybody in the church knows, you know what? He's nice and everything, but if he's not present in a meeting, it doesn't matter what the other elders said. It's not going to happen. Now, nobody's ever had that experience, right? <laughs> and so what is it in our system, in our collective system, you get what you put up with. You get what you put up with. That's true politically, that's true socially, that's true in marriage. That is true in every aspect of human relationships. What about the bully? What about the bully? Who enjoys confronting a bully and getting beat up or getting shut down or getting ignored? So do you have any practical counsel? Well, one of the things that uh, I think is important to understand is the bully gets to do what he gets to do because he's allowed to do it. You can't just point at him and say he's the problem. If it weren't for him, we'd be better off. Because if you find a way to exercise him or he, he kicks out some for some reason, guess what? The system's set up to employ the next bully. You're going to get the same thing back in. It's just going to be in a different form. The name will be different. The background will be different. But the behavior will be the same because the system's set up to act that way. So it's collective courage that requires a group to say, Bob, I'm just use Bob. Is there any Bobs in the room? I'm not talking about you, okay? Bob, you don't get to act that way. You don't get to throw your weight around and get your way because you have a forceful personality. Bullies have to be confronted. Guess what that takes? Courage. Courage, right? And if only one person of a group of seven confronts the bully and the others cower in the corner, guess what that isn't? That's not collective courage. That's still individual courage. It takes somebody to be willing to take the first step, but the rest of the group needs to support that well. Not in a cultish, you know, lemming-like fashion, but rather, yes, this is right. This is righteous. That kind of behavior we will not accept. And stop it. That's the kind of language that a bully understands. I can illustrate. I was working with a church, a 400-member church, and I knew from the exiting minister and from the youth minister on staff that there's this really nice bully in the church. I mean, it, it can be very nice, very winsome, very calm. That's, you know, and so we gathered together on a Saturday morning with a church survey that we do and walking through the church health assessment and and it's group participation, it's group discussion. And every time I'd ask a question, he would answer the first time and go three or four minutes. And I watched people in the room literally move their chairs back and cross their arms. In the first hour I was there. Took a break and came back. I thought, well, okay, all right, let's get some more feedback for those who hadn't spoken. He spoke again first. So at the next break, I took him aside and I said, 
wow, you have you really invested in this church. I mean, it's obvious, and you answer first every time. I would like to see other people answer because I've noticed when you talk, people shut down. You can you can see his blood pressure, his ears turn red, and he said, "Well, I, you know, nobody's talking. Somebody's got to speak." And I said, "Well, give him time." By if he didn't do it again. So I said in front of everybody, brother, thank you for your comments. We need to let the body speak now. I embarrassed him in front of everyone and told the person that invited me, they won't be working with us after I leave here. He'll shut that down. I didn't get to work with him. <laughs> but I called him out. Now, uh, biblically speaking, we don't like to deal with the passages of how to rebuke an elder. First Timothy talks about it, and isn't it interesting in the Jewish background of this, it's always two or three witnesses. And if you go back to study Leviticus and the Old Testament stuff, that's rooted in Jewish legal system that you've got, you don't bring, you don't treat an older man hard, you don't speak to him harshly, and that the Bible tells me so. You can, you can be calm and you can be kind, and I didn't raise my voice, I wasn't unkind, but I just simply said, here's what I'd like for you to do. He ignored it. But there is instruction about how to deal with this, this kind of person. You have an accusation against an elder. You don't have to speak harshly. First Timothy deals with this. And he was a young evangelist having to deal with this. He was an old season evangelist. And he wanted to get out of Ephesus. Remember? Paul had to tell him, God didn't give you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, Holy Spirit, love, and self-discipline. Timothy wanted to run. Paul says, no, you need to stay right there and deal with this. And he's a young guy. So the bully is, you say, well, that's just exception. I, I can't think of any churches that ever had this. Yeah, hello. I think it's important throughout it has to be group that's standing up because my own experience as a minister you lost your job. Yeah. yeah. And one of the ministers stand up, and then nobody else would stand with And yeah. when it happens, and at least the way our policy is set up, the minister gets fired. Yeah. Who disciplines the elders? Or people talk about it. I find that people talk about it. People in the church know. They know. You get what you put up with. And our church is just stuck, and it says, okay, you get what you put up with. We probably talked enough about this. Go ahead, so the example of this is in Acts 15, the good old Jerusalem Council debate. Boy, look at the emotion in Acts 15. I mean, there's a small group. There's dissension. There's no small arguments going on. It's a huge debate about accepting the Gentiles. And, and, and boy, we just, they, we, you know, I don't have to go through the whole thing in Acts 15. But it's really fascinating to me that it took some time to build trust. It took some time to get the issue on the table. They were not conflict avoidant. We'll talk about that later. They weren't conflict avoidant, okay? And it ends in Acts 20, 28. That whole chapter is just riddled with lots of discussion and lots of argumentation. And I mean, where do we have opportunity to do that in the church today? Because we're so conflict avoidant that it's very difficult couple with the culture we live in that's so anxious 
and so polarized and so fragmented, we're going to have to take our cues not from the culture, but from the Holy Spirit that's in us. And it's going to take some courage. But I love this phrase. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world? You great preachers help me understand that afterwards. <laughs> it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Isn't that interesting phraseology? And so they made a decision. They came to a decision after much de debate. They made the decision. They set it out. And it stuck forever. And eh, nah. There's a group that couldn't live with the decision. And by the time you get to the end of Acts, guess what? Five times in a chapter and a half, they tried to kill Paul, take Paul out, diminish Paul, get rid of Paul, of the very things that were decided at the Jerusalem conference. So it, it, it takes courage as an ongoing thing, and you're going to have to have a lot of resilience. Resil resilience. It's hard work. It's tough, and you have to do what you don't feel like doing in order to build resilience. And it's, it, I mean, it's painful. It's gut-wrenching. It's a loss of sleep. It's an ache in your soul. It's all that stuff. Yeah, it's not easy. Go ahead. All right. So one of the things we all have the same amount of is time. Until we die, you know, we're all, we're all on the clock. And for collective courage to emerge, we need to be able, with this group that we're a part of, we need to spend time with them. You don't, you know, if, if some people trust more quickly than others. There are those who trust first and then have to be proven wrong, and there are other people who don't trust until they're proven that it's, there's trustworthiness there. We're all different. You know, we have that different way. But what we found is that the time that this collective group spends together is extremely important. What are you doing with that time? Well, you know, you introduce, you start talking about the ball game because that's, that's how you get into a conversation with one another. But eventually you need to talk about what? What is most important? Not what color are we going to strike the parking lot, yellow or white? <laughs> right? Though, what, what I think we do is we avoid conflict by talking about the things that are easy to talk about that somebody else could be doing, and we sit and waste too much time. And there's good things about wasting time together. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're together to do the work that you're called to do. Are you doing it? But if you spend time together, then trust can build. But trust builds more if you're talking about and using your time well. Because if you're frantically running a church and you're behind and you feel behind and your time is critical and you can't get to it, then guess what? It's hard to trust when you're anxious about getting everything done. The Jerusalem Council took time. We don't really know how long it took, but it seems as if it was days, right? So, so how you spend your time helps collective trust emerge. And so we always encourage elder groups to delegate everything that you can and you as elder groups or as a ministry team talk about only those things that you can do so for elders it's how are we shepherding the flock and where is this church headed and what's most important to us and what's our purpose and it's to talk about what is going on not how to get it done 
Talk about that a little more, the what and the how distinction. So what we're doing is more important to talk about than how, but because we're Westerners, we want to talk about how because we are a problem-solving culture. Particularly men. Many of us get paid literally to solve problems. Engineers in particular need to solve, that's their job. So when you put a problem in front of them, it's a problem to be solved. But churches aren't problems to be solved, they're people to be led and loved. So the engineer, in, in, you know, that, that kind of mindset, that troubleshooting mindset, needs to take a back seat and talk about the what. What are we about? What are we for? What's God doing with us? How can be done in a multitude of ways. And usually if you can delegate that to others, you can give them a lot of developmental opportunities to lead in ways and get things done. And they won't do it the way you would do it, but that doesn't matter. right? What matters is they're getting a chance to serve and you're doing the thing that only you can do because you can't recruit them to do your job as a shepherd because it's not their role, it's yours. But if you step over and start taking care of deacon work and bringing that into the room, that you can do that all day. I was working with the leadership once, have to be my own leadership, and I was trying to do this what and how <coughs> distinction. And I'm one of, John's my good best friend, and he can tell you I get into how pretty quickly, so he's always having to get back to what. But uh, I, I said, guys, here's what I want to do. I want to try. Tonight, in our meeting, every time somebody starts down the road of how, I'd like for you to cross your arms and push your chair away from the table. <laughs> now, at first, it was like, really? And then one of them finally did it. One of them said, well, what, what, what did, why did you do that? Oh, why? What, how, why? It, it was came a little joke, but after about 15 minutes, we, weren't, we realized we weren't discussing any what's. We're so defaulted to the how. And, you know, they made fun of one another. Why would you put your chair back on me? That was not, yeah, it was. The other one said, yeah, I was about to push mine back too. because that." Was, so it was a kind of a joke, but it made the point. It made the point. So, so the classic example of, I think it's next. Uh, so, um, yeah. So, so I want to talk about collective courage for a second. I've worked with a lot of churches, but there are a couple of stories that are really powerful. There's one church. Uh, I'd been in a neighborhood for a long time, very large church, and over time, the, the, over about 15-year period, the neighborhood changed dramatically from... 10% minority to 80% minority, 15 years. And the church had not been able to track with the neighborhood. And so it was dwindling, overbuilt at, at this point for their size, and they needed to come, they, came, they kept walking up to the cliff of making a decision to go ahead and sell and move, and they'd back away. And they'd say, we're gonna talk about it again. They'd walk up to it, and say, you know, kind of like on the 10 meter jump, right? And they're like, okay, we, we, we need to jump, but we won't. Eventually, over time, a couple of months, they were able to, as a group of about 15, like 15 men in the room, they were able to eventually make the decision to sell and move. A collective move. Not, not one person can make that decision. They all had to make that decision. And it was a great choice because the church reconstituted itself in a different place. It's a very different church. It's been transformed away from what it was, but it was a good move. They didn't... 
you know, you could talk about and people could guilt them. You're abandoning the neighborhood. You're blah, blah, blah. They just, they just had missed their chance to, to be helpful to that neighborhood. So they went and found a place that they could do that. Another church that I did not work with, but I was on the backside of this decision, was a church in, in, uh, in the Dallas area that had been in existence for a while. And uh, they had run across some, some, some rough uh, territory internally. And the elder group was not getting along. Help came in. More help came in. More help came in. The group could not get their feet underneath them. They could not get together. They could not get along. And one of them said, we need to close this church, sell the property, and liquidate it so that it can be used for God's purposes because we are going to just sit here and argue and be no good to anybody. They were not in financial trouble. In fact, they had a lot of money. But that one, that was a one person pushed that forward and the rest of them started talking about it and through a process over months of discussion, that body, while they couldn't agree to get along and stay together, they could agree to, to separate and close out. They sold their property. They gave their missionaries to other churches and with an endowment, $500,000, take care of our missionary. $1.2 million, plant churches. And so they gave that much money to another church and entrusted that church with that money. And an Hispanic ministry that baptized 500 people in the first four years was birthed out of that move, that collectively courageous move to close out what wasn't working, to reconstitute it in some other way. And they were 230 people on yeah, Sunday morning. Yeah, good size. And another church even, a remnant of that church spun off and started another church nearby. So, so the beauty of that story and the collective courage it took to say, we aren't, this is not working. We've got a disease that's not going to be solved. It's not going to be cured. Let's close. Let's die and be rebirthed in a different way. It can be done. Collective courage emerged in both of those churches. One of them continued. One of them chose to die. And there, this is a good time to talk about our friends with Heritage 21, mm. just for about 60 seconds. Scott Lambert, who worked at Pepperdine for years, as well as Mike O'Neill, and they have a board. It's called Heritage 21, and they basically will help churches close and, and reinvest in kingdom purposes. That's the essence of it. Uh, Dave Schultz is one of their ambassadors and uh, that's in the room, but it is a wonderful thing. It doesn't have to be, oh, we, we died, we died, we died. It's not, it, it's not failure. Churches have seasons, congregations have seasons. And so you need to write the resource down, Heritage 21, if you're in a situation or know somebody, what are we gonna do? Rather than arguing about who's gonna divide the inheritance among us and who's gonna be the last one to shut out the lights, turn out the lights, how can we reinvest in kingdom purposes? Heritage 21. There's a booth down by Firestone that has information on that. Yeah. So, 12 spies? What? Yeah, how about those? So, so a great example of collective discouragement or poor practice, right, is the story we are so familiar with, right? One from each of the 12 tribes is gathered to go spy out the land when the Moses and the Israelites first came up to the Jordan. The 12 go into the land. They come back, right? And we know Joshua and Caleb have the courage to go forward, don't they, right? They say yes to God's promise, and 10 say no. They don't just say no. They, they, they 
put a bad report out among the people. This place is crazy. We're going to die out there. The Nephilim are there. Yeah, it's a great land, but we can't do it. We can't take it. And we know what happened. I mean, they, they, they basically sentenced an entire generation to death in the desert because they chose to extinguish the courage of Joshua and Caleb. I mean, it's the story in my mind that I will turn to and say, that's not who I want to be. I don't want to be a part of something like that. That's a lack of courage. It's cowardice. And it's worse than that because they even, they didn't just say no. They made sure everybody else wanted it to be no. It's, it's a sad day. Yeah. Or in the case of a church that kept saying, we can't lose our young people, we can't lose our young people. But they weren't doing anything. So one of our consultants, basically, one of our men, just basically said, go ahead. Be a nice, sweet church. Turn your young people loose. Let them go. Give them, just say, get out of here. Go, go do something for the kingdom because we're going to circle the wagons right here where we are. We're just going to be who we are. Well, no, we want them to say. Well, then do something different because if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. You know, the definition of insanity, you know? What is the definition of insanity? Expecting different results. So, here's a question that we often use uh, in, in working with churches. I asked it at the end of class yesterday. What story are you wedded to about your group or your church? What narrative are you constantly telling about your leadership group, your elders, your, your, your preacher about your church? What story are you constantly, well, we used to be, 10 years ago we were, I wish we could get back to, or well, we just don't have the resources. Oh, we just don't have any leaders here. What story do you keep telling about your group or about yourself or about your church? Because in that story is either the power or the lack of power to move forward. Yeah, so it could be a positive story or it could be a, a less than kind story. So I, I'm interested. What, what story do you find yourself telling about your body, your, your church body that you're a part of? illustrations. What do you keep saying about your church? Yes. So the problem we were having was people were wanting to live in the glory days and You're the only one that's ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> once we decided as leadership to say, well let's create new glory days. We lost people, but we got stronger with the folks who stayed. So they were telling stories about the way it used to be and, and yearning for those days, looking back. And so Which you really kept that moving forward. forward. Yeah, well done. Good for you. And how's that going? Slow but positive. Yes. <laughs> Takes time. We'll take, we'll take that. We'll take Good. that. Thanks. Somebody else got an illustration? <clears throat> what story do you keep saying about your church, or do you keep hearing others say about your church? Similar to Mike, we used to be. John, you friends for our church. Yes. We used to be a congregation of three hundred and fifty, built of wonderful facility, had everything you need, everything, and people left, and left, and people left, and no one came back, mm -hmm. and we're a little over a hundred in a building.
And what's the story? The story, how do we get back? Uh, that's a question. But you, do you tell a story of this is who we were or this is who we could be? Do you tell? Well, I, I want to add to that. I think we're, we're now using some of that past heritage because we, we have recently sold off part of the property ah, that people had bought in the right. past for some other plan that never came to fruition. But now <coughs> we have dedicated that funds from that property for outreach and for growth. And we've just recently hired a new youth and family minister. We've, brought, we've got some new families in. We're going we're to find a gear to that. We've, we're looking at, we've got a community college yeah. like a block away from us. We're thinking about going that way. So we're, we're reinventing, we're, we're, we're appreciative of what's happened in the past, but we're using, we're trying to get away from a stay in the past and think about that. We're trying to place. leverage your past rather yeah, than trying to yeah. leverage that. Well, and the fact that you, ch that you sold some property, you know, that's, that's in some ways the, the desertion of a dream mm -hmm. that somebody had. We bought that property for something and now we're not going to be able to do that but at least you're using what you have at your disposal yeah. to move forward. It's no, those, aren't, those aren't simple moves. No. no. I mean, that, but it takes time for, as a collective group to come to those conclusions. Well, well done. Good for you guys. Happens in marriage too, you know. I mean, we used to, we used to. I remember when we did, I remember when, I remember when, you know, and you're so wedded to a current <coughs> reality, a current story of what you didn't, what you used to do that you're not doing and then the wife says to her best friend on a women's retreat, you know, I just don't think our marriage is gonna make it. I, I just, I want it to, I know I'm embarrassed, but, but neither one of them were willing to reinvest in a positive future. Or the guy that comes to marriage counseling comes one time and says, I'm not into marriage counseling. Or you ask me to do things, comes back two weeks later and he goes, I think the things you asked me to do are stupid. I don't wanna do those silly things. Well, good. Give me my hundred and twenty-five dollars, and I won't say it again because it's not going to work. Hundred twenty-five dollars. Yep, I just raised the price <laughs> <laughs> because the cost for your marriage is pretty high. <coughs> yes, David. A couple of congregations I've worked with in a situation what you were talking about. One looked at a time when they, some would say it was a split, some would say it was a church plant, but they had a dynamic, dynamic individual that started another congregation, and they always looked back on that. And what if, what if, what if we hadn't done that, and so forth? And they came to the point of saying, well, we either need to figure out who we are and go forward, or we need to put those two churches back together. And so they merged. And they, they started a new identity as the merged church. Uh, another congregation, they kept talking about, well, we started as a campus ministry. Mm. And our campus ministry has just gone down. It's just not what it used to be. So they had to make a decision. Are we going to be a campus ministry again? Which means we're going to have to do something different. Or are we going to stop measuring ourselves as a campus minister and figure out what we need to do? And so they made a commitment to reinvent the campus ministry. And I think both of those are illustrations of what you're talking about. Yeah, they're courageous. I mean, it takes time and it takes courage and prayer and, and reliance on the Holy Spirit to have those things come together. But it can be done. You do not have to stay in the rut. You can make the rut a groove by moving, you know, getting in the groove and moving forward. All right, so let's go ahead.
So we talk about uh, building capacity uh, for collective courage. Now you're going to think, well, this is going to be the profound answers of these two guys. They absolutely are. Absolutely are. So you might be amazed at how simple these are, but simple does not mean easy. Trust means showing up and participating. Well, you know, we can't get all the elders together, so we might as well not meet till we can get us all together. Mm -hmm. What is that about? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so-and-so, if he's not here, you know, if we take a bow, he's going to come back in. And Well, if you're going to lead, show up and participate. I become so weary of hearing, well, he's just the quiet elder. Well, he doesn't say much. Oh, he says a lot, probably to his wife. It's called pillow talk. And don't underestimate the power of women in decision-making in our leadership groups. It's huge. But people, I get so weary of people, well, you know, so-and-so's quiet. He's just quiet. He won't say much. But he, he'll get on his cell phone. He'll call, have breakfast with his best friend, and they'll just talk about, well, I just don't know if we can trust that person. Well, say it in the room. Get it on the table. Lead. Well, I'm just kind of a quiet. I have to think a long time. All right, think faster. <laughs> talk to me. Talk to me. Let's get it out on the table. Well, I just don't know. It's always, it's always this. Well, I'll tell you. What that means is I'm shutting down and you're not going to get inside. Read the body language. Some people just have to rest it on their stomachs. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but the reality is sh show up and participate. My classic examples, uh, one of our, our chairman of our board was an elder at a church in Dallas. Really strong, powerful business guys in North Dallas. And this elder, they, this elder group had worked and worked and worked and worked on, on some stuff, processed but one guy who was a very sharp, I think he's an attorney, he, he didn't show up for any of the meetings, but when it came time to make a decision, he came in and wanted to give it his opinion, and the chairman of our board of Hope Network looked at him and said, you hadn't been here, you hadn't participated, you made your choices, we are making this decision tonight. Stopped him in his tracks. He looked at him and said, you're exactly right. Let's take a vote. You see, it's this. If you're going to, to show up and, and participate. To be fair, that's collective courage because the rest of the group didn't counter that. Mm -hmm. they, they wanted that. At least it would seem they did. They wanted that vote to happen and didn't want to get shut down by the individual. So they supported that decision by the chairman to say we're taking this vote. Collective courage. We all have people that are in our head. Our, my spouse is in my head. Uh, my kids are in my head. My dad is in my head. My mom is in my head, right? You need to know who's in your head as you're sitting and doing this work. Who's talking to me? Who am I going to disappoint if this decision goes that way? There are more churches than I can count who are locked down because mom and dad, who may even be dead, are not going to approve of what this group is starting. That is undifferentiated immaturity. 
Can you say that a little plainer? I didn't quite get that. <laughs> it's wrong. It's wrong to allow. That's why yesterday we said one of the things you need to do is be able to take your position. You need to know what you think. You need to know why you think it. And you need to think through your positions and take them. And know who it is that you're going to disappoint when you make that decision. There's a real good chance you're going to dis disappoint somebody who's in your head. And being able to do that and taking your own position, knowing you're taking care of your own self and moving yourself forward is important. And as you do a collective group, you know, to confess that, you know, my dad would not like this and I'm going to do it anyway because it's, it's what we need to do right now. I'm not, I'm not saying you should disrespect who's in your head. I'm saying you are a person who has a responsibility as a leader to be a part of the group and help the group move forward. And somebody who's buried holding you back is not right. There are some churches that will never move because of what dead people thought. Yes? I think that's probably one of the biggest fears probably for eldership is disappointing the people that they've grown up with or love. If that's for me personally, if that's the first thing that comes to my mind, then I shouldn't be in leadership. Possibly, unless you can overcome it. And, you know, Jesus disappointed the dog out of Peter. I mean, it was awful to be called Satan and to be said, get behind me. But he had a mission, and he was not going to be pulled off of it. And he loved Peter, but he didn't let him do it. The mission was more important than the relationship. And it's sad, it's really sad when parents say to, a church, to their, their kids, well, I can't come to your church because you guys do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Like, really? Well, I'm sorry, too, because that's just goofball. You won't be able to worship with your grandchildren very often then. That's a silly choice, but that's your choice. Fine. Because this church needs to do what it needs to do, and I'm a leader in it. And I hope you'll change your mind. Right? That's a... That's a differentiated move. You are not going to pull me over to your side just out of emotion and out of, out of manipulation. Can you tell I'm passionate about this stuff? I mean, it's just silly. And we're better than that. We're way better than that. And we let that stuff pull us away. It takes courage to take if it. If there's a place that courage is necessary, it's inside your own family. That's the hardest place because there's so much at stake. And church is family, so it's hard too. But it's usually mom and dad and, and, and whoever else is in your head that's the most important people that you're concerned about. And that's understandable. It's also to be overcome. That's why when, when I go into a church sometimes I ask, tell me your story with a leader group. Mm. And invariably when I hear... My daddy served as an elder in this church for. My daddy served, I just listen, but I know it's going to come back somewhere in, in the weekend of why they're stuck and can't go forward. I, eight out of ten times is the case. We want to be aware of our time today. Um, the point is... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, so it's basically use, use your time well. If you use your time well in the group, then you, you build trust and you have the capacity to be courageous and be 
straightforward with one another. If you're, if you're using your time poorly, you're going to feel rushed. You're not going to talk about the things you really need to talk about. And so you're going to be shooting from the hip all the time. You need to talk about what's most important. And if your group is not doing that well right now, that is a pretty, that's the most, perhaps the most simple thing you can do is say, guys, let's organize our time better. Let's spend our time together in, in more productive ways than, than we have. And, you, you, and here's the thing. Well, we, we, we rotate the chairmanship around, and so, you know, Charlie Seibert, who's a great mentor of ours, hated, hated, hated the elder of the month thing because it just, it's a change of the guard every four weeks. You can't get anything done because you're always passing off the next thing, and if somebody doesn't want to do, do the hard stuff, they'll wait, they'll just delay it. So get a chairman, give him some, some authority, but write it down, what he can do, and then let him do it for a year. Well, what if he becomes a tyrant? And he's like, well, then stop him. <laughs> Collective courage, right? Write it down. Here's your line of authority. Here's what we want you to do. We entrust you with that. Do it for a year. If he does it well, let him do it for another year. But don't let him do it a third year because he'll wear out. I, I find elders all the time that tell me privately, they'll say, I do not have administrative gifts. It makes me sick at my stomach to think about chairing a meeting. I don't want to. I'll do anything in the world. That's not where I'm strong. And they treat me, I'm the junior elder that has to take their turn. And I said, don't. Well, I mean, the rest of the group, don't. If you're not gifted at it, don't If you're do not it. gifted, don't do it. It's key. If and if none of the elders are gifted, if the preacher is, let him lead the meeting. It's not about power and authority. It's about giftedness in ministry. You can tell I'm passionate about this. I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing I'm passionate about this, if you're an elder group on a search team and you get resumes or you're looking at a preacher, please respond quickly and appropriately. I mean, guys, stringing people out for months with no communication, you're dealing with people's livelihood and life. If you're on a search team, if you're on an elder group, please respond timely to people. Even if you know, well, we're not going to consider him, but he's going to call him. Let's take this, draw straws. Just say, look, we're, you know, we're going a different direction speech. Oh, that's another thing. We'll talk about that next year. All right. Can I make just one comment on that very quickly? Yes. And I, I touched on it, but this is what I'm passionate about. Okay. Elders who use Lynn Anderson's phrase, don't smell like your sheep. So many times, elders are are above the congregation yes. and not of the congregation, and are making decisions and not communicating those decisions. I'm all for decision making and courageous stuff. Yes, but if you're not reflecting the demographic of your congregation and who they are and the direction that you, as a as a leader, as a shepherd, are seeing the flock going, then you're missing the spirit. Yep, it's well said. Yeah, you've got to stay in contact. You've got to stay in touch with your people. Always. Yes. Two ears, one mouth. That's, that's exactly right. Well said. Talk about what needs to be talked about. We will avoid conflict. We will avoid the elephant in the room. Have you seen the little cartoon that shows the elephant on the psychologist's couch? And he's like, yeah, people act like I'm not even here. <laughs> <laughs> that's the elephant saying that. So, so talk about what needs to be talked about. Broach the subject. Take, set aside time. Guys, this night, we're going to talk about the issue that we have with fill in the blank. 
We're going to talk about that. We're going to spend time together. Sometimes the issue is big enough you need to say, we need to schedule a retreat in the future to have this conversation. We're going to ask somebody to come in and help us with that conversation. Talk about what's most important. Uh, there's a thing called the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument. It's a five-box model of conflict. The propensity of elders land in the avoidant and accommodating areas of conflict. We chose those elders. Typically, they're not, they don't just show up and say I'm an elder. We choose conflict avoidant and accommodating elders for the largest part. Why? Because they keep the peace. They let us be comfortable. They make sure that things don't get too hairy or weird. That's us. And then we employ competing, yep. aggressive ministers. ministers and wonder, you know, I just think there's a conflict between the two groups. <laughs> well, lottie up. That's Greek for surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, I had one more time. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, no. We've been together way too much this week. I've watched it so many times when there's when men are in a room and there's emotion either and usually it's anger or frustration or I'll tell you what I'll you know that kind of stuff but sometimes there's tears and you can feel people's emotion and guess ladies help me here what do men typically do with that you go ahead say it oh shut down we shut down <laughs> I don't I'm just a crybaby but we just <laughs> shut down we a lot of us shut down so this 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 is real important that a lot of times we got to get through the pain and experience the pain so we can learn and grow or it keeps us captive. Push through the pain, pain tolerance, pain tolerance. Did you have something? Anyway, so that, those are, are really profound, deeply important. Do them and it'll change your life. Don't do them and see you next year. But, but, you, can, but you can see that if, the, if these are things you're doing, then the ability to step forward and say what needs to be said and do what needs to be done is, is, is more likely. It allows the courage to emerge. Okay. Spend time together, build trust, and do the work. Okay, so the last story. How many of you are familiar with this book? Okay, excellent. Yeah, yeah you would be. This is uh, Shackleton's uh, incredible voyage. The ship is the endurance. <coughs> and, uh, he built this ship in the, in the 1910, 1911, 1912 time frame trying to get to the South Pole. Ship got so far into the ice, caught by the ice, crushed in place, and effectively sunk. Shackleton had about 23 folks with him, picked them, handpicked them, and there they are. They're stuck in the Antarctic. Nobody around. They had some supplies. They abandoned the ship. They did as much off as they can. Thanks to his leadership and the cooperation and other sub-leaders in his group, all 23 guys, two years later, made it back to their families. One guy lost a foot. That was it. It is an incredible story of leadership and courage. I would highly recommend it, and I'd highly recommend that you read it in the winter. <laughs> Because That's tough in California. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, but it, it's a great story of, of leadership and of courage. 
and uh, I could talk about it for quite a while. But, but truly, the ability of this group to move through tough times, to move through, you know, go left, back up, go right, go over the mountain, come back across the mountain. Go. It's just this back and forth and this continuous movement, and you could call it, in a way, a Holy Spirit movement. That they're moving as, as best He knows, and they're and they're believing in their leader. So to believe in God and to know that God has you, as you make these really important moves, courageous moves, a courageous church is inspiring. And if you make a courageous move and we know about it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to tell people because we need good, courageous stories. I hope the two stories about the two churches was helpful today. To die courageously is a beautiful thing. To make a shift and to sell and move to a new space is, is a courageous move. And it's hard, yeah, and it's worthwhile. So thank you so much for, for being here. Grady, I'll let you finish. If you know something is going to be difficult, you can get through it much easier, more easily. If you expect it to be difficult, you can get through it. The reason I say that is we love victory in Jesus. We love preaching people into heaven on the day of the funeral really quickly. And we, we just don't do a good job allowing people to live in their pain and, 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 and difficulty. We just don't. And so I, have, I call it a triumphant gospel. We love the triumphant gospel. We love the victory in Jesus. Everything's going to be fine. We've got all these promises. But we're really weak, poor, at, at just accepting people where they are in their pain and allow them to be there and knowing it's difficult. So when it comes to church, you can't gloss over the realities that we face as human beings. You just got to do that. I, I was with a last 30-second story. I, a girl that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, whose, whose father was blown up in a natural gas explosion working for the gas company. She would, she just, she was angry, she was mad, she just, and, and once a week for about six weeks, I picked her up from her drug abuse, took her to the cemetery in Tulsa, sit, sit right there with her in silence for six weeks until she could yell at God and she could deal with her drug abuse. But I could have said, I'm a preacher. He's in heaven. I'm sorry this happened to you. That's Greek for bad. <laughs> and so I, it applies to churches to endure the pain. God, God's with you. I think that's what we've heard all week. It doesn't mean it's not easy. It doesn't mean it's easy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. If we can ever help you, call John. <laughs> <laughs>